This is Now You See Me, the podcast where we redefine what it means to be a Bearcat in this day and age. Joining us today, we have our highly esteemed guest, Taylor Allgood, who currently stands as UC's undergraduate student body vice president. Outside of student government, Taylor is a third year international affairs and political science student minoring in French and women's gender and sexuality studies. Welcome to the pod. I'm so excited to have you joining me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before we start, could you go ahead and give me your pronouns? Yes, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And could you also tell us your age and graduation year? So I am 20 years old currently, and my graduation year is projected for spring of 2023. Awesome. So to start us out, I was wondering if you could share the time frame of the election cycle for UC student government um, and give us kind of a behind-the-scenes look on the election process. Yeah, so the elections for student government are kind of unaligned with how um, we typically see academic years. So um, people who are interested in running for the elected positions, which are president, vice president, and then the eight senator at large positions, um, they must run a public campaign in each spring semester, um, usually starts about the beginning of February. And so from there, they run for the following year. So they started in the beginning of February this year, as we did last year. And, um, you know, they had to go around at first, um, get public petition signatures from students. So for presidents and vice presidents, it's a higher number than it is for the candidates, which are the people running for senator at large. And from there, once they get the allotted signatures, they are then approved to run a public campaign in front of the student body um, where they campaign for roughly two weeks. Um, and then there's a few day voting period where they push as much as possible and try to get students to vote for them and to see their vision. And so as someone who's done two campaign cycles now, both in 2020 for Senator at large and then 2021 for pre uh, for vice president, I can, you know, give my personal experience on the whole situation. You know, as an international affairs and political science major, it's definitely something that I feel like very much prepared me for my future career goals. So that's one of the main reasons that I was drawn to these campaigns. But um, from, from my perspective, it really does challenge you in many ways as a person. For me, those weeks, those two weeks are very stressful periods, but they're also very rewarding periods for the people who run because, um, you know, after putting in all that work and seeing your hard work pay off, it's an indescribable feeling. So I would say definitely that, you know, we're encouraging more non-organization members to try to pursue these positions because they are open to the student body. But from my from my point of view, it's it's a long process, um, very tedious process, but it allows you to have a lot of fun, connect with the student body in ways that you might not have been able to before. And it gives you those skills that you need for really any career that you want in the future. And how do you structure like the logistics of your campaign, like the cornerstones of why you're running? Yeah. So the planning process, especially for president and vice president, takes place you know, several months before that campaign. 
it's kind of something that's understood that you need to have a plan in progress. It's really not something that people can easily pick up, um, you know, all of a sudden and then try to attempt. But we try to like encourage as many people to have the preparation they need to feel like they can go for these positions. But um, I know for speaking for my presidential campaign with my partner, April Gable, we started the process last year as early as October. Um, and then we planned all through the rest of fall semester and winter break so that we were prepared to fully launch our campaign and hit the ground running in the spring. So the logistics for planning out a campaign is also very tedious in a sense that we had to start from scratch. We had to reach out to our uh, respective groups and, you know, see what students would fit best on our campaign team and help, you know, push our vision and everything as much as possible. So as president and vice president, as a candidate, we were able to have a team of up to 30 people, including us. So that's a very large number, but all of those people on our team were useful in some way, shape, or form. We had graphic designers from CCM. We had photographers. We had finance people from Lindner helping us manage our budget. So really, no matter what school you came from or what your interests were, it definitely all comes into play in some way in these elections, which makes them so fun because you can have a lot of different friends and different um, students and people that you know on these teams, regardless of if they're involved in student government or not. And so is your goal to publish your standings online and create a presence there as well as campaigning in person? Yes. So especially in recent years with the rise of COVID, we've seen kind of a shift toward more heavily utilizing social media, especially, you know, since we are in an age where, you know, a lot of people do look to social media platforms to stay informed. We try to utilize that to our advantage. And so last year, especially the, the slates and candidates this year were lucky in the sense that they could, you know, campaign in person and be on Main Street tabling. But for us, we didn't have that privilege. So we had to run a complete online campaign. So we really had no choice but to utilize social media and to really push ourselves out there, especially on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and the other big platforms that people our age use. And could you get into the details of your campaign and what you stood for in that process? Yeah. So when I was asked by April to run my campaign with her last year I was only a second year at the time so in April was a third year so she had already an advantage in the sense that she had a whole year before I had got to campus to really think about her goals within the organization and know that she wanted to run for this position starting in her third year for her fourth year but when she reached out to me and kind of expressed wanting to form a team together I was a little hesitant at first partly due to my age and just not feeling like I really had that experience to you know, gather my bearings on campus and really like find, you know, solid places that I wanted to um, really grow in. And so I was kind of struggling at first, but after talking with April, I kind of, you know, through that process of talking with her and a few other people, they kind of gave me the encouragement to realize my potential and, you know, decide to run for that position. So one of our biggest focus points that we really wanted to emphasize during our campaign was a sense of woman empowerment. 
So looking at who has served in these positions historically in the past, as we all kind of can guess, it has been historically male-leaning. And even in the case where women have served in these positions, it's always usually been accompanied by a man. And so in recent history, there has really never been an all-woman-identifying slate to really show up for UC and, you know, present their visions. And so we thought that this year or last year um, would be no better time than to really emphasize that idea of women empowerment and use that to um, launch our visions. But we also wanted to create a balance because, you know, being women leaders can often be difficult in the sense that during our campaign, right off the bat, we were getting bashed a little bit online about, well, you know, you're using your identity as, you know, kind of a way to market and, you know, push people to vote for you without having like X, Y, and Z ideas. But we really wanted to emphasize that, no, that's not the case at all. We don't want people to vote for us just because we're women identifying. We want people to vote for us because it doesn't matter truly what we identify as. What matters is that we have great ideas um, and that we're determined to implement those. So we had a slogan of together we will with an emphasis on her and the word together, just to kind of lightly emphasize that we would be, you know, making history as an all-women slate, but also emphasizing that sense of togetherness and that um, this is this was truly an effort that we wouldn't be able to do without all students, regardless of gender. And I'm curious if the pushback you received was from a predominantly male audience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was definitely um, from more of a male-identifying audience. Um, some people were not so happy at the fact that we were, you know, embracing our identities through this process. And for those reasons, I can't really explain why it bothered people so much. We, you know, personally thought it was empowering, that it was fun. Even in response to those comments, would really just try to keep the mood at, you know, we recognize and we understand your perspective, um, but we just want to say that it's not our intention to come across this way and that we really do have tangible ideas that we hope to accomplish. And I'm proud to say that as our term comes to a close, we've accomplished nearly all of those, with the exception of two that we will be finishing after we get out of our terms. And so how has your vision translated to the programs and organizations on campus? Yeah, so one of our main areas of focus within our platform was increasing spirit, student life, um, experiences, um, sustainability, and diversity and inclusion. So throughout our terms, we did various pro projects um, such as our Less Talk, More Action, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Conference. We've been working with Dr. Pinto, the First Lady, as well as the Bearcat Pantry to create a Bearcat card swipe system to help our more food insecure students on campus. And the list just really goes on, um, including like expanding Bearcat Fridays to increase that spirit and really focusing and working with women's sports throughout this year has also been another big area of emphasis for us to try to highlight and bring more spotlight in advertising to our women athletes who have really been killing it every season. And I just think that people don't realize that enough. So in, in those ways, we've kind of worked to increase that transparency and that awareness. And I think that we've had tons of great su success with that. We've seen, you know, numbers at women's games increasing across the board. Um, and just people having 
more of that school spirit that we were hoping for when we implemented our platform. So how much impact does the student government have in terms of allocating funding for certain areas? Yeah, so that's been something that we've really been trying to clarify for students throughout this year. What many students don't know is that we ourselves as an organization don't disperse budgets necessarily to other student organizations. We actually have two different entities that work with the budget other than student government. So SACUB, which is the student advisory committee for the university budget, who at each fiscal year are the ones who look at the overall university budget and determine which cost centers on campus that money will be dispersed to. Whereas the university funding board, they more so work with registered student organizations that are approved by our student activities board. And so they provide the budget for student organizations to hold their respective initiatives. So for example, like if there's, you know, a hiking club and they need money to go on an annual hiking trip, they'll go to UFB rather than to Coob to get access to money to go on their hiking trip. And who would need to go to Sakub to get funding? So Sakub does not directly work with students. Rather, they work with the cost centers on campus. So the cost centers can look anything from student government and the university funding board to the Office of Ethnic Programs and Services on campus. So Sakub has a great platform because they can allot money to different identity-based centers in different areas of campus that students can't directly ask for funding for. But the organizations that UFB and the University Funding Board works with, those are directly students from organizations saying, we need XYZ money for our organization. Can you help us fund that? So after your election, is that when SACU would allot you X amount of money to carry out your initiatives? Yeah. So um, the fiscal year does not perfectly align with our election cycle. So they don't necessarily allot money to the organization after every election, but they allot it during our budget reset, which is coming up here shortly. So it typically closely aligns with when a new president and vice president is sworn in. So in a few weeks, they'll reconvene when the budget resets and kind of assess how much money as a whole, for example, how I mentioned last year, we were given upwards of 90 some thousand dollars. That's when they'll reassess and say, okay, for the following year, you spent XYZ amount of your budget. Um, so this is how much we're giving you for the following year. And you mentioned that there are two initiatives that you're still planning on implementing. Could you go into those two? Yeah, of course. So the first one is our student submitted platform points. So when April and I ran our campaign last spring, we left one of our 14 platform points up for student submission as a way of allowing students to utilize their voice and kind of tell us what they would like to see. Because oftentimes when people are running their campaigns, they have in some ways, a biased opinion of what they think needs added to campus. So in, in a way to kind of reduce that a little bit, we wanted to see what other ideas students who weren't involved in student government had. And so from that, we gathered that several students were still unaware, especially coming from registered student organizations, how to get funding for their organization, because sometimes the criteria for UFB we were hearing 
could be a little bit complex and students were confused on how to ask and receive that funding. So we came to the decision for our platform that we would hold a town hall style setup event for students from organizations to be able to come um, and learn the difference between SACU, between UFB and between student government because when you're not involved directly in the organizations, it can be confusing to kind of hear, oh, there's three different organizations that have a budget, so where do I go? So that's kind of one of our ways that we're trying to eliminate that barrier is by increasing that transparency and allowing students to directly talk to these different entities and figure out the work that they do. Um, So that's one of our um, second to last projects that we have to finish. And then our final one would be our Power for Next initiative, which is one of our sustainability initiatives. Um, And that's what I referenced earlier in regards to having a Bearcat card swipe system in our university cafes and markets on campus for students who go through the Bearcat Pantry to receive free swipes so that when they're in, say, Market on Main and they're in need of a snack, but they might not have funds at the time to get those, they're able to use their Bearcat card swipes directly on their card and just go into one of those markets and get a snack up to a certain, you know, equivalent value of what a swipe would be. So that is something that we're very proud of. Uh, Originally, April and I just had this idea inspired by Cincinnati Fridges to have a fridge on campus. One of those ideas of having a fridge on campus and having kind of like that setup of take what you need, give what you can. And we thought that would be a really cool idea to have at a university level. But after talking through some logistics with some of our university resources, we realized that perhaps this could be a much bigger initiative than we originally thought. So we're very blessed that the university has recognized the importance of our initiative. So this is going from what would have been a few thousand dollar project to a million, a several million dollar project. So that's just one of the ways that being a student leader and seeing your work come to fruition can be so rewarding because now without that initial idea, we wouldn't have been planning the large-scale initiative that we are now, which will now be able to benefit Uptown Campus West, Blue Ash, and Claremont. And I can just see that being an essential component from here on out. The decision to live on campus might be difficult if students are food insecure. Right. And that also grants them anonymity if they go with their friends and they're able to just move through the line like everyone else would. Yeah, of course. And that was the idea is that We really want to reduce that stigma, so we don't want students to have to go into these locations on campus and say, oh, like, I need my free swipe or anything. That's why we're trying to combine it, um, like, with our Bearcat card, because our Bearcat cards are really essential to a lot of different resources on campus. So you use it when you swipe into a building. You use it when you swipe in um, and use it for you know, a meal at center court and so forth. And so the hope was that it would be no different from using your card at center court and using it at the market. No one needs to know that those were donated swipes at the Bearcat Pantry. And your idea of the like town hall meeting, that actually segues into another question I had, which is what would you tell newer incoming students about student government and how can we make use of that as a general student body? Yeah, that's a really great question. And that's something that has been a priority of student government for years. 
I think there's a common misconception that you have to be directly involved in student government to utilize, you know, the different resources we put out or the different events that we host. There are some events that are less stigmatized than other. For example, like if we have a food court, uh, if we have a f- food truck on our campus, students don't directly associate that with student government, so they're more likely to come up to it, utilize it without knowing that we're the ones who funded it. Um, and the recognition, that doesn't matter. But what matters is that, like, if we're holding a an event, say, on Main Street and that student government tablecloth is out there, you know, people might say, you know, oh, like, I'm not interested in student government or it doesn't particularly concern me at this moment, so I don't see a need to go up. But we really, really, really... Um, If I could just give any piece of advice for students is to just know that student government is a resource for you. It draws upon resources that you provide to the university to maximize your experience here. Um, And so to not want to utilize student government and the different, you know, initiatives that we put out there is a truly a disservice um, because that is always our goal is how can we take what we're given and make it better for the next years and the next generations who come to UC. Um, so I would always just say, embrace us. We're always looking to talk to people. I promise we're not a scary organization. We love helping people in any way we can, whether that's providing other resources that they need. If someone comes up and says, hey, I want to get involved in this, but I don't know where to start. We help people, um, you know, find different involvement on campus. It really, it's not all about joining student government and being involved in student government. It's really focusing on how we can improve your time at the university. And I also wanted to backtrack a little bit. I know that you mentioned that being a part of student government has um, greatly impacted your confidence in moving forward in your career endeavors. So I also wanted to ask, how you see the value of effective communication when it comes to collaborating with people on campus and how that has informed either your career path or what you see yourself doing in the future. Yeah, communication is absolutely critical, not just to this role, but for any leadership role on campus. And I say that because oftentimes people think that people who run for positions like student body president and vice president that they're, you know, knowledgeable on all areas of campus, that they know everything there is to know about UC and its history, which, you know, is true to some extent. People who are in these positions do have a good deal of knowledge about the university, but we don't know everything, you know? And so I think the first step is admitting that, and that's what makes communication, especially effective communication, so beneficial is because you develop community partners and you develop a network of people throughout campus who specialize in areas that you might not be specialized in. So even though we cover, you know, all there is to know, you know, basically in student government and we have initiatives for basically about anything you can think of, you know, it's impossible for one single person to know every single topic there is to know and, you know, advocate for every single interest. And so by communicating with other people across campus and other student organizations and offices, 
you learn more about areas of campus and different topics that you might not have been previously exposed to very much. So that has definitely played a big role in how we've been able to perform as president and vice president is by creating that line of communication all throughout campus and being able to have people that we can lean on when, you know, there's an event going on that we might not be as knowledgeable about. And I'm also curious how that translates to other organizations that you're a part of outside of campus, that sort of bridging of communication. Yeah. So, for example, I am the director of membership for an external entity called Southwest Ohio Young Black Democrats. And one of my main jobs, of course, as the name implies, is to recruit membership. And so through my effective communication building in my vice presidential role, I've developed a whole network of people that I can now reach out to in their respective groups and say, hey, this is something that I'm involved in. And this is something that you can be involved in, too, if you're interested. Um, And so it's definitely helped my work in external organizations and so forth, because it's all through networking that you are able to successfully hold a position, regardless of what the title is. We definitely, as humans, need connections and need people to be able to reach out to when we have different ideas and want help getting them off the ground. So I think that's the biggest way that my role and, you know, practicing that communication has helped with my other involvements outside of campus and outside of student government has just been that building of a network that has allowed me to reach out to them with my different interests as well. And I know that you also participate in multiple nonprofit organizations. And I don't know, it's difficult to enter an organization that you're unfamiliar with, or maybe you don't know how to get started or find your footing. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So from a nonprofit perspective, I grew up in a small town east of Cleveland. So it was it was a very small community. So with that being said, it's very different from Cincinnati in the fact that not always are different interests represented. So for me, Growing up in a town that faced socioeconomic struggle, I've kind of always had this like desire and this inkling to help people, especially gender minorities, just from my own personal experiences and, you know, observing what I went through and what people around me in my community went through growing up. It really kind of geared my interest toward helping people on a public scale. And so for me, Um, As I kind of explored my career path within political science and within international affairs, I realized that I really loved helping gender minorities, specifically women identifying individuals, um, you know, people with children, um, just any any type of person who might face socioeconomic um, barriers. And so for me, I got involved pretty early on in my college career with two nonprofits that actually are kind of combined, but they have separate um, missions and operations. So the first one is uh, Sweet Cheeks Diaper Bank, and then the other one is Title Babe Period Bank. Um, And so they're a nonprofit organization that works to provide diaper kits and period kits to um, people with periods and families in the Cincinnati community. Um, who might not have access to those products and um, to those materials for their families. So 
Um, for me, it's always been really fulfilling to be in such a big city like Cincinnati and know that on an individual scale, I have been able to help provide over 200 period and diaper kits to families and people in need in, in the community. Um, and so I think that's kind of what sparked my interest was just, you know, my upbringing and my appreciation for, um, you know, identity and for helping people who need it. Um, and so that's kind of what got me involved in the nonprofit sector, but also from a student involvement perspective, being, again, in a large city and on a large campus like UCs, it can oftentimes be very overwhelming figuring out where your interests lie or, for that matter, what specific interests you would like to hone in on and really develop within. Um, and so the best advice I could give for that was or is just to um, utilize different events like the org fair. Um, utilize centers like the Center for Community Engagement that are always sharing opportunities for how to get involved in the community and on campus. That for me was very beneficial as a first year because I knew that coming from high school, I wanted to change up my involvement a little bit and be more active in some different organizations that I didn't have you know, access to or just wasn't aware of previously. And so I did, I utilized the org fairs and I looked on volunteer.uc.edu just for fun sometimes, just to see ways that I could help out in the community. And so that was the best first step that I could have taken. And so I would definitely suggest that to someone else who's in the same situation. I definitely agree with that. I think there's kind of a narrative that it's a high pressure situation and you have to choose what you want to commit to. But going about it in that kind of more casual way of just like sorting through and finding something that jumps out at you. Right. And I was always told in college that it's always better to pick a few things that you're passionate about and really try to grow and develop within those organizations than to try to carry that mindset from high school that you may have um, had that is you're supposed to be involved in everything. Um, I was definitely one of those over-involved students in high school, and so I thought I was going to come to college and do the same exact thing, but I've personally found it much more beneficial to find a few things that you really want to say that you were able to accomplish during college and make it your goal to really explore the ways that you can evolve within those roles. Because to me, at least, that's going to be feel way more rewarding than just saying that you were in all these organizations, but never truly made the large scale type of change that you wanted to make. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of allocating skill sets, it's better to really hone in on one thing and really branch out within that than to have just a bullet list of XYZ. Right. I also wanted to touch on the period bank and the diaper bank. I feel like those would previously be seen as personal issues that wouldn't conflate to a community crisis or an issue of public health. But I wanted to hear how those issues are addressed on a day-to-day -day basis. Like what is the distribution of those kits you were mentioning? And how are those issues addressed with the communities that they're serving? Yeah, I like how you bring up how people always see issues like this as more of a personal issue and not a public health crisis. But what people often fail to see is the domino effect of these issues. So 
if someone in the community who has socioeconomic barriers is struggling to provide products for themselves when they have a period or if they're struggling to provide diapers for their children, you know, they might have to stay home from work that day. People don't understand the severity that periods can bring and other, you know, health crises can bring and how they can impact someone's day-to-day life. So if someone, you know, can't provide those basic resources to themselves, they might miss out on work or other opportunities to provide for themselves and for their family. So people always see step three, but they never see, you know, step one. And so I think that has been, you know, big in my advocacy work is showing people and, you know, explaining to people how all of these things are really connected, if you think about it. And so how these products are distributed is that there is a warehouse in Cincinnati that both of the banks work out of. And so it's like a storage warehouse. They work mainly from corporate and other donations, and they'll just take inventory. So they have, I've, I've taken inventory for them before where I'm just in the back counting, you know, how much products they're intaking so that we can kind of evenly distribute how those packs will be made. There's always like a specific number that goes in each one just to be as equitable as possible. But then beyond that, this is a nonprofit that works to help communities in need. So there's always an area of emphasis on Cincinnati public schools and different shelters and things like that around the area that are also nonprofit based because oftentimes those are the areas that struggle the most to provide those resources. So I can say from my knowledge, um, Sweet Cheeks and Title Babe really focus on the public school systems and the different local shelters around here that specifically serve women and children. And basically, as I understand it, just being there and being a part of those communities gives you automatic access. So they'll usually just drop them off for no extra charge, and then those will be available to the people there. And I think that strategy is essential because you're working within the locations that people already know they can go to and turn to. So you're filling in those gaps. Right. Your description of the domino effect makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it. I couldn't quite explain it, but I have heard of it. It's basically just explaining how if you don't have your basic needs met, that's like the bottom of the pyramid, then you cannot move further on into emotional security and yeah, finding your place in your community if you do not have food, shelter, and the basic provisions you're talking about. 100%. I also wanted to touch on your creative expression and how finding your voice is translated into these different passions that you have. Yeah. So actually, my journey as a writer started much before my journey as an international affairs or political science scholar. Um, And I think that was truly important for laying the foundation for my work in these areas of study. Um, So I started writing poetry and just writing in general around middle school. I remember having to do this poetry assignment as a required assignment for class. And at first I was a little bit dreading it, I'll admit. But um, after really putting some thought into it and just being an overachieving student as I was at the time, I knew I had to put, you know, a lot of effort into it. And so I ended up writing a poem called An Angel Song. And I submitted it to my teacher for the contest that was required of us. And I ended up winning. 
And that to me was very shocking because, you know, this was something that like I had put effort in, but I wasn't expecting like anything major out of it. But when I won the competition and I found out that my poem was going to be published in an Ohio student's poetry book, that for me was kind of an awakening because I was like, whoa, my my voice is being listened to like people I'm speaking and people are liking what I'm saying. So that was kind of a wake up call that like, okay, maybe I am, you know, a pretty talented writer. And I think before I had really underscored that, but or under understated that. But, you know, having that experience kind of pushed me forward and encouraged me to seek mentorship from my English teacher at the time who validated my thoughts that I was a great writer and was like, yes, you definitely need to continue with this. So from that assignment, I decided to enter that same poetry contest again, my ninth grade year. And let alone I won again. And I was like, wow, I'm really enjoying myself right now. And so for me, um, that gateway into writing opened up a lot of doors for me. And in my sophomore year of high school, I participated in a diversity and inclusion event through my community's YMCA. And at this time, I had had an interest in writing, but I wasn't, you know, taking it very far or anything. But once I got invited to participate in this event, I, you know, said, maybe there's a way that I can cover the topic that they're asking me to present in a way that feels unique and affirmative to who I am as a person. So that's where I got the idea to create a spoken word poem for the event that I would perform for the audience. And that was the first spoken word poem that I had ever written. And it was called Small Talk. And I wrote it, performed it at the event and got a standing ovation. And Again, it's just those experiences like that where like it wasn't even the recognition per se, but it was just the feeling that I was so passionate about the ideas that I was expressing within my poem and people were receptive to that. And people, you know, whether they were snapping or clapping, they in some way were showing that they agreed or supported my belief or my expression of that belief, I should say. So that's what really got me thinking about how I could combine my passion for social justice with my power that I held as a writer. And it's become very useful, not only to spreading awareness, but also as a creative outlet. I often write now, but it's either for a special purpose, whether it be class or an assignment, which I still put my effort into. But there's also a different type of poetry now that I feel like I can create. So there's always two different kinds. It's whether it's spreading awareness or expressing an experience or an identity or a struggle that I've held. So those are kind of the ways that I've utilized poetry in two different areas of my life. And now that I've been writing for several years now, I couldn't imagine, you know, having a different part of myself. Poetry has definitely been instrumental in developing as a person, developing my voice as a student, as a leader. And so I try to use it in any way I can. You answered three of my questions. Just oh. <laughs> in, I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I also wanted to touch on how difficult it can be to own the title of a writer or a poet, especially if your work is unpublished. So I'm curious what your internal dialogue was when you 
saw that you would want and you would never seen yourself in that? That is a really great question. I think any creative endeavor, no matter what it is, but especially in this case, writing poetry is very difficult at times to accept or recognize yourself as because of the subjectivity of creativity. There's always that part of you, um, I feel like, that, you know, wonders, how are people receiving this? Or, you know, as as a world that loves to categorize things as right or wrong, sometimes it's hard finding that balance between saying what you want to say and expressing yourself how you want to express yourself, but also trying to be receptive of who your audience might be and what might be socially acceptable to say at that time. So that's been one of my, you know, biggest struggles as a writer is finding that balance. And then that that dialogue for me is still something that I work on every day. I'm sure everyone from beginning poets to very advanced and published poets would say the same thing that when you're sharing your poetry, you're sharing this vulnerable side of yourself and you're opening up a very closed off part of yourself that you don't often share with people. So in many ways, before I present a poem, I get really nervous because I'm like, wow, I feel like I'm going to be you know, naked in front of everyone on this stage. That's what it really feels like. That's how I can best describe it is like literally just being completely naked on stage. That's what it feels like and how bare and raw your emotions feel when you're sharing your most personal work. So kind of what that dialogue looks for me is a lot of convincing myself and telling myself that there is no right or wrong to art. There is no right or wrong in the way that you choose to express yourself. And it's definitely easier said than done in many cases, but what's always pushed me is the fact that I can be in front of a crowd of people, but the minute I look at everyone and say, people deserve to hear my words, that's what makes all the difference for me. And then everything else that comes after is just affirmation. It's just extra, but just that initial barrier and that initial obstacle of saying, you know, people deserve to hear what I'm saying is often a process that I go through right before I present a personal piece of my work. When you said people deserve to hear my words, I literally got chills. <laughs> that's so that's so important. It's so easy to get sucked into a loop of negative self-talk. But if you can intercept that with something positive, like, you know, you're not eliminating your audience from the equation. You're mm -hmm. taking into account that they are there to hear you. Yeah, exactly. And I think you definitely do see improvement as you continue to write. It can feel very challenging um, as a beginning writer, but the important thing to know is that your art is your own. Like no one is, you know, forcing you to share it with anyone. That was a personal choice that I made because I was really excited about my work and, you know, really wanted to share it with other people. But for anyone who wants to get started in writing, know who you're doing it for, because it does not always have to be for an audience. There were many pieces and there are many pieces that I have that I still have not to this day shared with anyone because those pieces I decided were written for me. You know, we always associate that like art needs to be like marketed and everything needs to be like a commodity, but really that's not the case. We should just learn and accept 
that we should just create art and create things that we want to create just because we want to and because they mean something to us. Because now I'm in a place where, like I said, it still can be a challenge at times. But if anyone asks, I would be happy to share my work and things like that because I know what I'm doing it for now. And so having that conversation with yourself is crucial for knowing where to start. And I think making it for yourself first is key. Like if you're trying to project a certain narrative or a certain piece for your audience, but your heart isn't in it, Mm -hmm. that kind of eliminates what art should be about. 100%. Do you have any closing thoughts on just putting yourself out there? Because you've done a lot of that and just working with your confidence to put yourself in unfamiliar spaces. Yeah, I love this question because what many people really don't know about me is that I actually consider myself to be quite introverted. People often see me on campus and see the roles that I'm associated with and say, oh, I could never be in her position because I'm too shy or I'm too this or I'm too that. That was something personally, a personal goal of mine that I really wanted to emphasize this year was that you are the master of your own story. And we often label ourselves before we even give ourselves a chance to, you know, prove to ourselves like who we are and like who we could be. And so I would just always encourage people like no matter what dream you have, no matter what, how you assess it and weigh the pros and cons, the pro will always be that like this is a goal of yours. And for that reason, you should go after it. Like I kind of mentioned at the beginning when April asked me to run for president with her, in a way I was terrified because I was like, I'm introverted. There's no way that I can be the leader of an entire public university when I'm like too shy to tell people my name in class sometimes. And there's always this like idea of like who should be in certain roles. But I hope that If there's anything that people can remember from my term, it's that I tried to challenge myself like in this role to set the stage for what other people could be able to accomplish. So I would just always say, you know, you dictate your truth. Whatever matters to you is what you should be doing. Um, No matter if you think you're prepared for it or not, I can guarantee you, you are. You just don't know it. That's perfect. I'm so excited for people to hear this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the coolest experience by far. Um, And so I I thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Now You See Me is a BearCast Media production hosted by me, Angie Bolin. Thanks for tuning in this week and be sure to follow our Instagram at NowYouSeeMePod. Again, that's NowYouSeeMePod. We'll be posting on there with updates and guest previews. You can find each new episode anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you next time.